0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome to the show and into the studio, Rachel Jory, who's the founder and CEO of Daily Harvest. Rachel, thanks so much for coming in.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Now, you were an undergraduate at Penn, is that right? I was, yeah. And how long Feels ago? Feels
1: good to be back. Um, I graduated in 04.
0: All right, but haven't been back to campus much since then.
1: No, sadly not. Yeah,
0: well, we're really grateful for you coming to campus. We have a program here at, on, at the campus of the University of Pennsylvania called entrepreneur-in-residence or sometimes expert-in-residence, EIR, we -hmm. invite entrepreneurs to come in and meet with students, and it just adds a huge amount of value to them. So thanks for doing it.
1: Yeah, of course. It's Mm -hmm. fun for me, too. All
0: right. So I want to get started by pointing our listeners to your website, daily-harvest.com. So just the word daily, the word harvest with a dash in the middle, .com. And But why don't we start by having you give me the elevator pitch for Daily Harvest.
1: Yeah, so uh, Daily Harvest really came from this idea that um, we have more information about health and wellness than ever before in our lives, but the same devices that give us health and wellness, like our phones, um, information about health and wellness are the same devices that make us busier than ever before. So there's this idea that you know we have this information, we don't have a way to actually live the way that we aspire to eat. So what we do is we, we uh, we fall back on quick convenience foods that are compromising on on this aspirational way of eating, and what we do is, um, you know, we we kind of look back and we have guilt and we're like, oh, that was terrible. Like, why did I make that decision? Um, but I was busy, and that's just kind of the way that that the cookie crumbles. Um, and sometimes it's literally a cookie. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I had this insight, and I realized that the freezer and frozen food was kind of the way to to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, frozen food is a $52 billion market that has had zero innovation in probably 60, 70 years. Um, the microwave dinner was kind of the last big innovation in frozen food. Um, so using the freezer as the way to solve this, what I like to call, a modern eating dilemma mm-hmm. um, is where the, uh, Daily Harvest came from.
0: Okay, um, so so tell me exactly what Daily Harvest does then to solve. Yeah. The, what did you call it? The modern eating dilemma.
1: Yeah, right. exactly. So um, Daily Harvest makes ready to blend smoothies, ready to heat soups, um, chia parfaits, overnight oats, all the incredible drool-worthy foods that you see all over Instagram, um, frozen, delivered to your door, and ready to eat in seconds
0: okay so let me let's dig into the product itself a little bit if we if our listeners go to dailyharvest.com what are they going to see what's the user experience to engage with the product
1: yeah so um, you eat with your eyes first mm-hmm. and that's an, an insight that we had early on so you'll see beautiful food photography that draws you in um, you know and doesn't make it feel you know it's light it's it's breezy it's easy it makes it feel like um, you know, it could be you eating it, um, but you know, as I said, you eat first with your eyes, and that's what you need to to engage people and to kind of drive them in to to learn more. And then people start uncovering, oh, it's convenient. Oh, um, you know, it, it's superior nutrition. These are all wonderful things that actually solve real life problems for me.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, but but. I'm still 1-0. How do, I, how do I actually do it? So what is how, yeah. do, how do I engage? Is it a, tell me how it yeah, works. Yeah, so we're a yeah. subscription. Yeah, we're subscription. So, okay. Yeah,
1: so you go in, you see all the beautiful mm-hmm. f- food porn, um, and you fill your box with whatever you want. So, you know, is it, is it smoothies? Is it soups? You you fill your box, and then um, we have a delivery cadence, and it gets delivered to you every week, and every week you can kind of switch up your order um, and find the right, um, the right combination for you, and um, you get the boxes delivered to your home, you take them out of the free out of mm-hmm. your out of the box. You put them in your freezer, um, they they kind of s- are there waiting for you. Mm-hmm. So you get to eat on your schedule, not um, you know the way a lot of the meal kit services work. You kind of have to eat on their schedule because yep. it's rotting in the refrigerator. Yep. Um, so it, it's ready when you are. You take a cup out um, for our smoothies. You open up the cup. You see all the beautiful fruits and vegetables in their whole form. You fill the cup with liquid. All those nooks and crannies between mm-hmm. the fruits and vegetables. Um, you can fill it with a milk, a water, whatever it is, and then you dump it in the blender. And 30 seconds later, you have a, a smoothie bar quality smoothie.
0: Okay. All right. So I want to drill down on a few things. Let's say I'm on the on the weekly subscription cadence. You mm-hmm. talked. You keep referring to a box. So mm-hmm. a box is sort of the order unit. Yes. Yeah. And and about how big that box is, and I open it. What do I see?
1: Yeah. So uh, we have four different sizes. Mm-hmm. We have a 6, uh, six nine, 12, and twenty-four box. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you see is is these modular cups mm-hmm. that are are packed very tightly, mm-hmm. um, which is. Wonderful for the operations yeah. side. so they're
0: all the same cup in terms of their physical characteristics. Yes, yeah, they're yeah. all
1: the same exact. Yeah,
0: yeah. So if I wanted to buy, I don't think you sell hamburgers, but if you did, it would come in one of those cups. It would come
1: in a cup. <laughs> all right. Yeah, but we do sell things like lattes, soups, grain bowls, yeah. and ice yeah. cream sundaes, and those aren't things that people traditionally see in cups yeah. either. So I
0: want to get to that in a minute. So. It's a it's it's a modular format in which the the larger unit is the is the carton and that comes mm-hmm. in several sizes and then there's a standardized cup unit yes. and you're right as an ops guy I love that so it's standardized cup yep. um, how big is the cup is it twelve ounces, 16 18, ounces. eighteen ounces sorry 16. I'm not 16. 18, yeah. yeah so it's a pretty good sized yep. cup like a like a solo cup mm-hmm. it's like the size of a solo cup yep so um, okay and then and then you said something that that took me for a little bit of a loop which was okay i add liquid and then i put it in the blender mm-hmm. okay so some of these items are not really ready to eat some of these items are ingredients so items. nothing is ready to oh, eat oh nothing, nothing is ready nothing
1: is ready so we call it one step prep okay so there was actually a, a um a case in business school mm. that gave me this insight and it was the mm. Betty Crocker crack uh, and egg case the crack and
0: egg case yeah and I remind uh, our listeners because I know them I know the meme but not everybody does yeah, yeah. so
1: um you know the, the people behind Betty, Betty Crocker first launched the brand where you would add water and you know mix it up put it in put your cake mix in mm. into the oven and voila you would have a cake yeah. um and it was a huge flap. and what the, the outcome of the studies and, and kind of understanding why the, cust- the product wasn't successful was, was this insight that, um, you know, at the time, it was 50s, I think, um, women wanted to feel like they were taking an active role in making the cake. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to feel like they were taking care of their family and cooking. So they said, you know what, let's take the egg out, crack that egg. Put it in the in the cake mix, the same exact cake mix. Right. Um, you know, add that same water right. and then put it in the oven and it took off and it was a huge sensation. Yeah.
0: Is that actually a case? I'd I'd always heard that story but never knew there was an actual case. There, there? is an actual wow. case. Yeah. Wow.
1: So it was something that really stuck with yeah. me. Um, you know, and, and being somebody who is into the world of health and mm. wellness, um, you know, I know that I am am very steadfast in my love of one specific almond milk. And right. people feel the same about their protein powder. Yeah. And I didn't want to tell people, mm. you know, I, I don't want to have to choose. There's too much customization mm. that would need to happen to have a solution for everybody. So the insight was, you know, kind of taking that. That Betty Crocker egg insight Mm -hmm. and saying, you know, let's let people um, feel like they are taking control of their health and wellness, feel like they are uh, taking care of their own wellness um, and choose their their liquid base, choose their protein and and go from there.
0: All right. So tell me how that works for tomato soup.
1: Yeah. So um, tomato soup is is, it's forget what you know about Campbell's and forget what you've ever seen, you know, a big chunk of of uh you know soup frozen mm-hmm. it's not what it is um so the way it, it works is our you open our cup and you see um a nest of beautiful spiralized vegetables mm-hmm. and it's uh, for tomato it's it's uh, zucchini noodles mm-hmm. and it's filled with all of the vegetables that uh, you would imagine are in soup but usually mm-hmm. don't get to see because mm-hmm. it's usually period or there's some sort of masking of what's mm-hmm. actually in it uh, but the same as our smoothies you see everything and there's all that those nooks and crannies, but between the vegetables, so you pour in either water or bone broth. Um, sometimes you can use coconut milk. Mm-hmm. There's some really wonderful options. You fill it in and then you heat it, and mm-hmm. it makes an instant soup. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like the reinvention of cup noodle, yeah, um, with unprocessed, unrefined whole fruits and vegetables.
0: And do you all, do I only need to heat, or <laughs> so so they're the vegetables are are partially cooked as before they're frozen. Is that right? Nope. Oh, they're raw. Okay, so they're they're then they're really. Thin, yes. Uh, so they'll, so They're they'll, very thin. Okay, they'll very. So they'll cook when you yep. heat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, I'm super curious about this one step thing because, I mean, just to push back a little bit on you, I most weekends make soup and then put it in the freezer. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a pretty interesting study that shows that at least one freeze-thaw cycle improves flavors. Yep. In soup. So, my guess is the soup would be better, or some soups would be better right. if you made it you froze it and you sent it to me. Why, uh, how, How? I guess the question would be, how central to the business model is this idea and did you really ever test that or was it just yeah. an intuition?
1: So there are yeah. a bunch of reasons. Okay. Um. And I'll, I'll list them. So number yeah. one is, um, you know, that insight that people want to see what's mm. inside. Mm. Um, people don't trust frozen food. People associate yeah. it with dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets and, and you know, frozen pizza. Yeah. So to be able to see all those ingredients in their raw form makes yeah. you really feel like you're cooking, and that there's nowhere to hide anything. Nothing's yeah. hidden in there. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, shipping water is really expensive. Yeah. Um, so you know, right now our packages are really light if we were to add liquid Mm. and ship them, Mm. I mean, the economics probably wouldn't work. Oh, interesting. Um, And also there is, um, there's there's like that that moment where you choose your own broth. Like some people are vegan, they're going to add water. Some people want that bone broth, Mm. the nourishment from the bone broth, and they're going to add bone broth, and some people want the creaminess. So you kind of get to to make the soup your own based on your taste preferences and Mm -hmm. your nutrition goals.
0: All right, those things all make sense. And then a couple more logistics questions. You say you fr- uh, you ship frozen mm-hmm. and it's a fairly light box as you don't have a lot of frozen water in there. Mm-hmm. So are you You must be using an insulated container and mm-hmm. you must use dry ice. Yes, yeah, we do. Okay. Yeah, so dry so- ice in order, you gotta keep it b- uh, below freezing, mm-hmm. below the freezing point.
1: Absolutely, yeah, so yeah. We, we actually um, get all of our ingredients frozen on the farm. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a very long cold chain and uh, that's kind of the last piece of I it. I see, all
0: right. All right, we're going to circle back on logistics in a minute, but before I do that, uh, tell me a little bit about about pricing. It, it's it's I noticed on the website you you do quite helpfully frame it in terms of a unit price, a yep. per cup price. So just tell us what that. Yeah, is.
1: so yeah. it depends on how how many you buy. So yeah. for the six box, it starts at seven ninety nine, mm-hmm. but as you get more, um, the lowest price is is six ninety nine if you buy the okay. twenty four box. So
0: somewhere between seven and eight dollars mm-hmm. is what you you pay, and and so, I might as well just ask this question. Um, my guess is that, you know, the margin on on overnight oats is going to be greater than the margin on something made with uh, zucchini noodles, uh, and so you've decided that's irrelevant. The like, customer doesn't care. Just keep it simple keep in it terms simple. of pricing. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the the really nerdy economist could could go on and say, you know what? I'm going to order only the lobster bisque or whatever it is yeah. absolutely but you know what yeah.
1: for, for us we're a convenience item we yeah. want to make it as easy as, be- yeah. as possible yeah. for people to flip in and out yeah. of different things
0: yeah and in, sp- in fact speaking of lobster bisque I didn't see any any meat products yeah. So is we're it, vegan We are vegan Okay. yeah
1: and the reason we're vegan is because you can always choose not to be so yeah. we have harvest bowls for example and we give exa- we give um, you know different proteins that you can right. make with it you can stir in chicken you can right. stir in shrimp right. but you know we want to leave that up to yeah. people yeah
0: Cool. So I guess if I were to just use a shorthand, you're you're somewhere between uh, ready to eat and a and 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 the truly start from scratch kits mm-hmm. that you know Blue Apron. Those you know you're sort of in the middle. Like yep. Add the egg, crack the egg, and yeah. totally. Perfect. All right. Super cool. All right. So um, you you alluded to the origin story, but but give give us a little more specificity. And actually, before you do that, why don't you wind back and. And uh, and tell us what you did between you graduated from Penn in two thousand four mm-hmm. and when you started uh, Daily Harvest.
1: Yeah, so I started um, I started my career at Four Seasons Hotels. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to work in some sort of marketing um, for a brand that I. Thought was very customer centric. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've always kind of thought in a customer centric way, and I knew that I wanted a brand that believed in that. So, um, you know, I reached out to an alum who worked there and got myself a job. Mm -hmm. Um, Spent a few years there, then went to uh, Columbia Business School. And after that, I uh, found myself at uh, Amex. Mm-hmm. I graduated in 2009 and then decided to go into financial services. So, you know, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, was in, was in marketing there. But, you know, in, in one of those big environments, um, I knew I wanted to find something that was entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. So um, I found myself on the launch team of a corporate card um, and got to see that entire process from, um, you know, ideation through launch, which was really exciting. Um, and then wanted to do something even more entrepreneurial, so went over to Guilt Group, kind of at its prime, mm-hmm. um, and found myself in a role where I was doing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and for me, that how was— be- How big was
0: Guilt when you joined?
1: Um, so I was on the Jet Setter team. Mm-hmm. And um, Jet Setter, you know, for those of you who don't know, is is kind of—it's the travel arm of yeah. Guilt. And um, the team was was probably like 20— people. Mm -hmm. Um, It was pretty small. And, you know, there was a a lot of room to grow and and they were investing like crazy. Um, And, you know, I joined joined the marketing team and I built out the adventure travel arm for the business and then, you know, pivoted to doing something else and worked on acquisition marketing, worked on, you know, retention marketing. I kind of saw the whole gamut. Um, And, you know, I I like to say that that was my true business school Mm -hmm. um, and then started Daily Harvest.
0: Yeah. When you, when you uh, you were working at Guild. Mm-hmm. When did, where did the idea, the, the sort of, I guess I got a bunch of questions. First of all, this idea is pretty coherent. That is, you've mm-hmm. thought through a lot of the logistical details, including the modular structure and that sort yep. of thing. Um, where did the idea first come from, and then how long did it take to converge on the particular model that yep. you that you're at that you're at now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the business really started with, with my own personal need. I mm. was, you know, it was too many days when I was starving and yeah. it was three o'clock. Um, and I would end up grabbing like a bar or some, yeah. some trail mix yeah. just for sustenance. Right. Um, I was hangry. Nobody wanted to be near me. <laughs> um, you know, and the same thing would happen in the morning. I'd run out the door. I was yeah. always, you know, I was trying to go to the gym and all right. like kind of ha- trying to have a life as well as, is working really hard. Um, and I found that I was just constantly compromising on how I wanted to eat. Um, I was an athlete growing up and I knew a lot about health and nutrition Mm -hmm. and I I just, I knew better, but, Mm -hmm. you know, time will only allow for so much. So um, I started meal prepping for myself on Sunday Mm -hmm. nights and I had the insight that um, meal prepping is great. It solves this problem. And hey, if I put it in the freezer, Mm -hmm. it actually really solves Mm -hmm. this problem um, because then I don't have to worry about it going bad and none of my time gets wasted, but spending my entire Sunday... On this is co- yeah. kind of a drag, right? Um, and I was like, "Why isn't anybody doing this? Right. I want somebody to do this for right. me." Uh, so I started researching and looking into it. And you know, during this time, I realized that my husband, like my my little meal kits that I was creating, were disappearing. What? Um, and it was my <laughs> husband; he was eating them, and I was like, "What's going on here?" Um, you know, he was running out the door eating something that he felt really good about that was taking him thirty yeah. seconds, and that was really when I had the insight that it wasn't just. I wasn't solving a problem for me, yeah. but I was solving a problem for, for multiple people. Yeah. Um, so I dove in head first and- But
0: let me interrupt you there. Were, were you, was the ground prepared for an entrepreneurial opportunity? Like were you in the background thinking, hey, I think I might wanna do my own thing?
1: Well, I've always, I've, I kind of, I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. Yeah. I kind of always knew I wanted to be yeah. an entrepreneur. I was just waiting for the right idea. Yeah. I I'd had you know 40 other ideas yeah. that I didn't think were the one. Yeah.
0: So in other words, any any great idea something you perceived as a great idea at almost any time in that period you were prepared to, to move yes. on it yeah
1: yeah okay. mentally it's it's what i had always wanted yeah. to do and it's yeah. kind of how i built my yeah. career
0: so what did you do first how did you did you do anything to validate the opportunity or just say yeah. now this is it yeah. Yeah. yeah so
1: i built um a incredibly rudimentary website mm-hmm. on Shopify. Mm-hmm. And I got myself a commercial kitchen in mm-hmm. Long Island City mm-hmm. and I went to the grocery store mm-hmm. and I bought fruit and yeah. vegetables yeah. and I, I put them in bags, like mm-hmm. literally baggies. Yeah. Um, and I set a metric for myself. I said, if I'm gonna do this, I need to be disciplined. Mm-hmm. And I said, once I can get five times more people who I don't know buying this than those who I do, mm-hmm. um, then I, I quit my job and I go for it. Yeah. Um, and it happened really fast. Did
0: it really. And and how were you acquiring those customers? Then? It was all word of mouth. Yeah. So it was the people you knew telling the people you didn't know.
1: Yes. Yeah. And for yeah. me it was, you know, as I looked through the names coming mm. on, that that's the, what I was looking at. I didn't yeah. I didn't care about, you know, yeah. my mother's friend who, yeah. who was like, I have to buy this. Uh, I cared about those who um, you know, who she told. Yeah.
0: And how were you doing the logistics?
1: Um, in my car. Yeah. yeah. Um, I so was, you were doing delivery as well? Yes. I yeah. was eight months pregnant. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in Long Island City, mm-hmm. putting together these, these mm-hmm. bags and, you know, putting them in my car, delivering them all over Manhattan. It was Manhattan only. Wow. Yeah. Um, and and that's really where, where I got the conviction that this was a really big opportunity, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and quit my job and, and did it. I bootstrapped the business for about eight months.
0: Yeah how you know we use this this language in entrepreneurship of minimum viable product yes. and there was some element of that for sure it sounds like the way you did the website and so forth but what about in terms of the the breadth of the variety you were offering was mm-hmm. it quite narrowly focused initially um, or or was it did it have everything from soup to to nuts. So it was just smoothies. Mm-hmm. Just smoothies. Yeah. Okay. So I started with smoothies for a few yeah. reasons. Yeah.
1: One, I knew that it was something that people would understand. Yeah. Um, you know, if you said frozen soup where you see the vegetables, yeah, people yeah, just like yeah, wouldn't yeah. get it. Yeah. Um, but I knew smoothies were something that people would understand. Yeah. And I also... Um, could do a lot of a lot of research like I would mm. go up to a smoothie bar and be like hey what's your most popular flavor thanks mm-hmm. I'll take two mm-hmm. um, you know and, and having those conversations I had a really good idea yeah. about um, different taste preferences yeah. at least in the New York area so it mm-hmm. gave me enough information yeah
0: but I guess I, I go back to this question of how the solution concept emerged because if you're only doing smoothies and this is frozen why why aren't you just selling a bag of bulk a bulk frozen Items that yeah. I can scoop out and put in my blender.
1: So there are a few reasons. Okay. Um, so if you if you think about like a the traditional bag of peas and carrots, yeah. right? Yeah. If you scoop them out and and boil them or steam them and eat them, it doesn't matter if there are more peas than carrots. Yeah. It just doesn't. <laughs> but um, you know, in single serve. If you if you could, for a smoothie like it has to be single serve because you need to control the proportions that much, and the other thing is I knew you know I'm, I'm a marketer. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that that cup was going to mm-hmm. be a huge part of our success and mm-hmm. making sure that um, you know people were able to to walk around and wear Daily Harvest proudly um, as if they were on the inside of something, they they were in the know.
0: Yeah, and and then so I guess the the next line of inquiry so you, you did this and had you raised any money or were you just bootstrapping this at at this point?
1: Yeah so I bootstrapped the business for about eight months.
0: Okay. And that got you how far?
1: Um it got me to a place where I realized I was choking off growth. Mm-hmm. Um so you know actually the,
0: give it, sorry to interrupt but but on that timeline, when did you quit your job in this process? Like six weeks later. Six okay. weeks later. As so, soon as I hit that five times yeah, yeah, yeah. uh metric. And okay. it, it was really it was, fast. It was six okay. weeks. Yeah.
1: Um and, you know, what I, what I did is I, I knew that if this was going to be, you know, the big idea, the thing right. that, that um, you know, kind of made me a true entrepreneur, uh, that it had to be scalable. Mm-hmm. So that was the next step. Mm-hmm. And it was figuring out how I took this kind of benchtop exercise that I had, I had done and how I scaled it. So I, I started looking into um, the operations and the logistics pieces of it um, and scaled it to the entire East Coast.
0: And and that was where in that eight months and, and that that and was the tail end of it. The tail end. And so, what did you have to prove before you were willing to go ask someone else for money?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, I needed to prove that there was product market fit. Um, I needed to prove that it was scalable, and I needed to prove that I had um, you know enough conviction in the business. Um, that I would be comfortable yeah. asking people for money and and you know having enough conviction where I didn't think I was going to just lose it.
0: Yeah, and at the time, at that time, was it still a pure a, a smoothies focus? Yes. Okay. So, all right. So, uh, where did that first money come from, and what did that pitch look like?
1: Yeah. yeah. So uh, mostly angel money mm-hmm. um, and one institutional, but um, I kissed a lot of frogs. Yeah. A lot of people would. I uh, give
0: calibrate our listeners about how many frogs.
1: Uh, for that round, probably 50. Yeah,
0: that's a number I hear a lot. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, a lot of frogs. Yeah. And, you know, getting, it, it can be really demoralizing. Yeah. I mean, it, people asking questions like, hey, why doesn't this taste like jamba juice? And I'm <laughs> like, I don't even know what to say to you because that's like the whole point. Right, um, because it doesn't
0: have uh, half a cup of sugar in it.
1: Yeah. Right, <laughs> totally. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, questions like, um, you know, you're are you are you a mom yeah like i don't understand what that has to do with anything um at least
0: you weren't you weren't at that time pregnant right i was not but i was
1: for our series a wow which was interesting we'll get to that yeah yeah but um you know i I was asked this this one question that i always love to share because i think it it just kind of i don't know as a woman entrepreneur i think it's important to have Uh the answer to this question but somebody asked me um you know how do you how do you plan to be a good mother and an entrepreneur. An investor and an, asked you this. An investor yeah, asked me, yeah. how do you plan to be a good mother and yeah, a good entrepreneur? Yeah. Um, and I thought, and I was very quiet, and I, I kind of like went inside myself, and I flipped it, and I was yeah. so proud of this moment. And you know what I said is, if what you're asking me if I'm a, is if I'm 100% committed to making Daily Harvest successful, then my answer is yes.
0: I see. So you didn't even, you weren't even going to dignify, acknowledge, yeah, acknowledge the question. I thought when you said you flipped it, you were gonna, you were gonna do the gender flip on him. Oh no, no, but you were too polite for that. No, yeah, (laughs) but I, it it is one of those things where you, 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 the temptation is to poke back, and the right answer is take a deep breath and think about what you're trying to get done here. For sure, yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. yeah, but kissed a lot of frogs, and yeah. you know, found some investors that really understood the vision, yeah, um, understood the big opportunity, mm-hmm. understood. Um, you know, what Daily Harvest would look like right. five years from, from that point.
0: Right, and what would you, what advice would you give people? I mean, you, you know, you've had remarkable successes in fundraising as you've grown, but at those early stages, I, it's mostly when I talk to entrepreneurs is right at that, that moment. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give them on, on pitching angels? Is there a way to make it any less painful?
1: Um, I would say no. Yeah, because you really not. have to learn. You mm-hmm. have to learn who are the right people that you're going to, going to to speak to that are going to understand what you're going for, and the only way to do that mm-hmm. is to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, it's probably easier if you can find people who are of your target demographic. Mm-hmm. It also, you know, helps validate the business, right? right. Like if, if if you're talking to somebody who is like dead center in your target demographic and they don't understand um, understand the business, then you might have to go look look back at the business. Um, but you know, finding people who who either understand um, understand. Business are part of the target demographic, or have done something similar, and for a different generation. Like there are all sorts of people that that you can speak to, um, but it's just it's a numbers game. Yeah, so I'm
0: I'm gonna underscore actually three things you said that I'll start with the last it's it's still a numbers game Mm -hmm. no matter what so that that's just a a reality and that number 50 is not an unusual one that's the first thing Mm -hmm. to say second is you can use those interviews productively to Mm -hmm. craft your pitch right
1: absolutely and
0: and the third is and I would say this one I would I would maybe underscore with less strength is yes, of course if you're if your investor understands your business in some way, ways, either been in that business or is in the target segment, it's easier right but but it, but you know it, I don't think that's always a criterion right for oh investors, no, absolutely right? not yeah. yeah,
1: absolutely not and and you know, for me, because I bootstrapped for eight months, mm-hmm. I had data, yeah, I sh- could show traction, right. so right. you know not all of my investors understood it, but they saw the numbers and, and they believed because of that.
0: So I wonder if you can talk about what the key challenges were in scaling. think if you go back to that period at the end of eight months to say the next year or so, Mm -hmm. what, what, what decisions did you have to make and how did you resolve them?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, when thinking about scale, you have to think about, okay, what, what is my, um, what is my specific operation and how do I, how do I blanket the area that I feel like, you know, reaches scale? Um, so you know, in that you have to make some hard decisions, and you have to you have to kind of do a lot of editing. Um, but I would say, you know, more specifically, if you um, the way that I always go about uh, all of these business questions, like how to scale, um, you know, going from minimal MVP to um, you know actually jumping in and starting a business, is by thinking about them in, in experiments yeah. and thinking about it in little experiments. So. There were a lot of levers that I knew I could pull to make something truly scalable. So I knew, you know, last mile, everybody gets killed on last mile. I didn't want to touch last mile. Mm. Um, you know, could I make, uh, you know, an existing carrier network work?
0: Me- meaning, let me just make I understand, you didn't want to be webband. as You didn't want yeah. to be have drivers and trucks and bicycles nope. delivering stuff to people. No, right. it is okay.
1: core core to me and core right. to the business that I believe in asset light businesses. Right. Um, and that was a lens that I, I kind of built the operation through. Um but, you know, making all these decisions, you can absolutely, you know, experiment and, and, and use like principles of science yeah. to prove out a lot of these yeah. things. So, you know, something like, um, you know, you mentioned the cup before and how I ended up in a modular cup mm-hmm. that that, you know, was a blessing when it comes to pick and pack. right? Um, you know, but that wasn't where I started. I started in bags yeah, and I wasn't sure what this would do to the customer experience. Um, you know, if the pick and pack experience would be as easy as I imagined mm. it would be, um, you know, what the, what building these cups w- would look like, right. and, you know, it's, it's, there's equipment that exists for a bag. Yeah. There isn't ex- equipment that exists for a cup. Um, you know how you differentiate between products. There's just a lot of things that you have to think about. So um, I always like to think of these decisions as little experiments. Mm-hmm. And you know, so much as um, you know, so small as you know, one-week surprise people with cups instead of bags and Mm -hmm. see what their feedback is. Is that what you did? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then I called those customers and I said, hey, you know, what did you think about this? Was this a better experience or was this a worse experience? And then, um, you know, when I was looking into Pick and Pack, looking at equipment and trying to understand, um, you know, what readers would give me lot lot traceability and, Mm. you know, how do I do that lot traceability with a bag versus a cup and, and kind of what are some of the intricacies there? And you take all of this information... Um, and I think that that's where you know the the little tests and, and little experiments are come in handy because they kind of show you the way. Mm-hmm. They kind of show you the light. And and you know you take all this information and you're like, okay, this didn't work. This did work. The things that didn't work, you can edit out. Like they're not as important to the customer and to the customer experience. As I mentioned, you know, I, I believe in customer centricity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I'd also I knew the operation needed to be scalable and viable. So, um, you know. Than thinking about like reality mm-hmm. over that.
0: Yeah. So one way to think about it, I suppose, is you at the end of that eight month period, the bootstrap period, you had a sense of the basic neighborhood you wanted the solution to be in, yep. and then you ran a series of experiments to iteratively converge on okay, this is actually the sweet spot. Yep. Um, how how broad was the? I, th- I think I counted something like thirty something SKUs. Forty three. Uh, Forty three. Okay. On the on the website today, mm-hmm. how many were there? At, during this period,
1: yeah. So there were actually ten, mm. um, and you know, from my early days where I was going literally to smoothie bars and talking to yeah. the the people yeah. blending the smoothies, asking what the most popular flavors are. What I realized is that there were there were taste preferences, mm. and um, that I, so I built these taste profiles mm. for this customer, and I tested them on on Facebook, mm-hmm. and I said, you know, am I are these flavors interesting to this group that I think these match with? Um, and it turned out that, that that was true, but that was another example of like a little experiment that I did before I came up with that original, um, breath of skews and, and Hey, guess what? Not one of them exists today.
0: Oh, is that right? Mm -hmm. So is that because preferences change or because you, I'm
1: not a talented chef. It turns (laughs) out.
0: (laughs) I see. You got better at it.
1: I hired a chef. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) But only after, you know, I proved the concept. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you probably were. Talented
1: enough. They weren't bad, yeah, yeah. (laughs) but they weren't as good as they are today.
0: Yeah, wow, that's interesting. So it it raises, though, an interesting question in my mind. You you started with a segment of one. It was you, Mm -hmm. and and then your husband, you know, crowded his way in. So yeah, segment of two, and and then you had these friends and friends of friends, and my guess is that segment was pretty tightly defined. And the good thing about a tightly defined segment is it's easy to meet their needs. Right. But how do you think about the trade-off between having a tightly focused segment, which lets you get a, a new entrant and get a wedge, yep. and having a big business, in which case you have to cater to some pretty broad needs.
1: So let me tell you about some of the other experiments okay. I did. Yeah. Um, so I had a friend from business school who moved to Kansas City. Mm. And I was like, I was trying to think of somebody who lived in a, in just like a very different area from right. New York City. Um, she was actually in a suburb, so she was you know not even urban, and um, I decided to send her a bunch of product. And I said, have a party. have a have a brunch on me and give, you know, explain the product to people and give everybody a, a code for a free box. And let's see what happens when we go there. Um, and the same thing happened where, you know, there was a lot of um, of word of mouth traction. And I saw this like bubble popping up in K- in Kansas City. It was fascinating. Um, and then not only did I have, did I understand that, like, Hey, if I can if I can um, figure out a way to penetrate some of these areas, that I it will be successful. Yeah. But also, it gave me an audience that was really different from yeah. you know me and and the other people in New York City um, that I could talk to and I could run ideas through and and I could um, you know get feedback from. Yeah. How different were they? Um, It's actually really interesting. Not as different as you would think.
0: And how do you know they just weren't Manhattanites transplanted? Because they weren't. (laughs) I I did a lot of (laughs) a lot of research on the
1: on the people, but um, but there are very stark differences that we continue to see today. Like mint is not popular on the West Coast. Oh, interesting. I do not know why, but people on the West Coast just do not like mint. Yeah. And on the East Coast, they love it. Yeah. So you know there there are things like that that you know. That's a regional preference. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, but. but what about? I mean, I was going to ask you earlier. Is it? It 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 strikes me that this is a relatively lighter food, uh, mm-hmm. health health position. Lighter food. Mm-hmm. How how female does it skew? Is yeah. It,
1: so we like to think of ourselves as androgynous, mm-hmm. androgynously female. Yeah. Um. So you know we, the customer, like the people who buy Daily Harvest are females, and that's because I mean. We obviously have a lot of good male customers, sure. but the majority are, are females. But that's who, who makes purchasing decisions in the United yeah. States. Yeah. Um but our consumer is actually mm. whole families. Yeah. So, you know, that's something that we we recognized early yeah. on as well. And and we speak to people and we are, are transparent with our yeah. knowledge of this. Yeah. All
0: right. Super super interesting. All right. I wanna I wanna um, spend just a few minutes more on operations. So you, you had said you want to be asset light. Uh, uh, on the other hand, it strikes me that this fulfillment and packaging and so forth would be something you'd have to control. So tell me a little bit about how you thought about mm-hmm. the make-buy decision on logistics and operations, how much of it you need to do yourself versus rely on others. Yeah.
1: yeah. So areas where I felt like it, it helped build my moat, mm-hmm. um, those are areas that we invested in, but mm-hmm. areas that, you know, f- felt commoditized or, right. you know, felt like- Anybody could go do it. Right. Um, those are areas that we we did not invest and in, continue not to invest in today. So, um, you know, things like technology for for lot traceability, for mm-hmm. example. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because I think one of our one of our uh, competitive advantages is being able to trace every single ingredient from farm to end user. Yeah. Um, but you know, the freezers that we store our stuff in, like I don't need to build those. Mm-hmm. There are hundreds of thousands of freezer frozen yeah. facilities all over the U.S. Yeah
0: um but 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 describe for us what your operations look like today do you do i mean i guess the main thing i'm thinking about is the freight economics mm-hmm. require that you can only ship probably within two days, right? Mm-hmm. Two days ground.
1: So we ship everywhere ground.
0: Everywhere ground. Two yep. days ground. So does that mean you only ship from one location currently? Nope. Okay. So you have to ship. If you're going to cover a large area, you've got to ship from more than one lo- location. Multiple
1: locations. And we do things like line hauls and all sorts of creative yeah. things yeah. To, to have as many hubs as possible right. to get to everybody in two days. And
0: do you have to control... Those distribution points, I guess, is the main question. Oh yeah, yeah. I figured as much. So even though you want to be asset light, if you're going to deliver this model, you do have to do some of these things yourself. Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah. You definitely have to do. I them mean, yourself, if you, you don't ship- have to own, like, you know, as I said, we don't own the freezers. Yeah. 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 But we own. Not we own. Um, mm-hmm. We employ. Yeah. The people that are are you know doing the pick and pack right. and the equipment that does right. the pick and pack. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. I mean. Yeah. We, these are all things if you were selling stationary supplies, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't need to do. Because you could rely on a third party logistics system that just works. Totally. But as soon as you have to pick and pack, ship frozen, all those things, uh, you gotta control
1: it. But it's a part of our competitive mode. So that's kind of how I justify it. Okay, got it. All right,
0: so I wanna uh, just calibrate our listeners because I I suspect although you're a sizable organization now, still the majority of our listeners won't have heard of you. So Mm -hmm. give us a sense of scale. Now?
1: Yeah, yeah. so um, we have over 100,000 subscribers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we deliver nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and the numbers that you fundraise aren't really necessarily indicative of the size of the business, but, um, you know, I think when people do hear about our Series B, they're often, um, you know, shocked by, yeah. by yeah. the fact that we were able to raise so much. So uh, we raised $43 million mm-hmm. um, from Lightspeed and VMG, who mm-hmm. are you know, just fantastic partners, right? Um, and you know the the size of the business justified you know that that sort of raise. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, that was the number I was hoping you were going to say because. I think a lot of our listeners' jaws are dropping because yeah. we ended with uh, pregnant and delivering in Manhattan, and yep. then we transitioned to raised $43 million Different. from Lightspeed, right? The
1: single largest round raised by a female in 2017.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate we even have to acknowledge that. But I, I couldn't it, but, agree more, but. but, but. <laughs> it's still a huge, huge congratulations. Yeah, That's thank amazing, you. yeah. So um, from which partner at Lights Lightspeed, by the
1: Alex Tausig. way? Alex Taussig. Ah, okay
0: so he's the best uh, yeah so (laughs) shout out to alex thanks and um so i wonder if you could contrast raising capital uh maybe you did a series a as well but but raising institutional capital actually let's talk about the series b let's just jump right to the series b how different was how many frogs did jeff kiss that time or were they kissing you not that you're a frog they were kissing princesses well so
1: so it was really interesting so um i kind of went through the motions with you know the series c and the series a Mm -hmm. i'd never first time entrepreneur i'd never done i've never raised funds before um and i learned a lot and then i employed all of those learnings into the series b Mm. um so kind of reverse engineering when i was going to go out raise the series b there were two things that i was looking for one was i knew that you know it could take three months to raise a round of funding it can take longer but you know I'd set my mind 3 months was like my absolute limit from from start to close and I knew that it had to be a successful quarter for me. Ah. So, you know, I made sure that the business was you know was one of our our best quarters of the yeah. year and I made sure that we were going to continue to and, to grow during that quarter. And what would be
0: those I, I I doubt earnings was the metric. What was the what was the key metric for you to when you say successful quarter?
1: Yeah, so I mean, you know, growth.
0: Right. But in subscription businesses, there are other things people look at, right? And and ROI. Mm -hmm. So essentially, acquisition, lifetime value relative to acquisition cost. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And so subscription benefit businesses tend to have. Fairly well understood metrics, and and you got they got to be right. They've got or, to be right. Yeah. So what's the churn? What's the renewal rate? Right. Those sorts of things. But that
1: yeah. can all yeah. come down to this this one number, yeah. which is the ROI. Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, and and if you're not above three, it's usually yeah. not seen as a great thing. Yeah.
0: So our so let's just put. It, I hate to be too nerdy about this, but we are in school here. So yeah. Um. So when you say ROI of three, what you mean is lifetime value over acquisition cost is is Correct three. Check to LTV ratio. Yeah. Yep. Is three.
1: Okay. Great. Yep. Awesome. I mean, at very least three. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Three We'd is like not seven, great. But
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So that was that was one thing that I mm-hmm. knew would have to happen. The other thing is, um, you know, I knew I wanted to raise a certain amount at a certain valuation. Mm-hmm. So I knew that the, you know, the size of the business had to be something where, um, you know, multiples that I'd seen for for a similar bu- for similar businesses would, you know, overlay and and you know, it would all make sense. Yeah um so those were the that was kind of the back work that Mm -hmm. I did so I knew exactly when I was going to raise and I knew what numbers um you know I I wanted to have on my you know on our on our P&L at that point um and what I did is six months leading up to that um I started dating and you know there were so many vcs that were reaching out to me mm-hmm. um there were people that didn't know about me yet that i wanted to get to know mm-hmm. and i used the 6 months leading up to have very casual conversations yep. and i did not share one number yep. with any of these people it yep. was a hey nice to meet you I'm Rachel. I'm building this thing, um, and I mean the questions, like you know, being pummeled with, yeah, well, "How yeah. big are you?" and yeah, "What's your?" Yeah. And, and I just said, "I'm sorry, I'm not sharing that right now."
0: Yeah, sorry. We we're just going to be friends for a while. We're just going to be friends.
1: Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, and and this was a luxury to be able yeah, to do this yeah. because you know we had the numbers and we had the traction that we could. Um. But you know, on the other side of this, I only chose four firms that yeah. I that I went to, and I said. I kind of turned the power yeah, around, yeah. and I said, hey, um, you guys are the only ones that have made it through my screening process, right. and now let's talk. Yeah. And here are the numbers, and, you know, I know you're going to be blown away, and guess what? This round has to be closed two weeks from now.
0: Wow. And that worked? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's yeah. that's pretty different from the first round. I'm yeah, glad I asked. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, talk to me about celebrities. So you have a bunch <laughs> of celebrities involved in your business. Yeah. How did how did that happen and, and and just I'm just curious. What's it like? Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: So um, it happened really organically yeah. and that's one of the most shocking things for me. So um, Serena Williams is one of the people that you know people are often like, "Wow, you know, how did Serena Williams get involved in your business?" And it's actually kind of a cool story and yeah. I'll tell it really quickly. Sure. Um, but her now husband, Alexis Ohanian, who's an investor, reached reached out to me. And he was like, hey, I'm a huge fan, uh, I'd love to chat. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alex, uh, Alexis is great, I had no idea who he was. Uh, um, so I was like, sure, a customer wants did, to talk to he me. And he didn't name drop. He did not name wow. drop. Yeah. Um, and uh, somebody on my team recognized his name, uh-huh. I Googled him and I was yeah. like, all right, let's talk. Yeah. And then he was like, hey, you know, my girlfriend's also a huge fan. Um, and you know, I, I think she'd love to talk to you. And I was like, okay, I had no idea oh, who this girl was. Um, and you know, when I found out, I was shocked. And it turned out that you know they consume Daily Harvest every single morning. Wow. Um, and they were huge fans, and they just wanted to get involved.
0: Wow. And so, where how'd you take it
1: from there? Um, I got to know Serena, and I got to know Alexis, and yeah. you know, they're they're both so supportive of the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and. and You know, once they heard where the business was going, Mm. they got so excited Mm. and, and, you know, they wanted to know how they could get involved.
0: Yeah. And then have you, I mean, I suppose you walk a line there between just treating them like you would treat any other investor Mm -hmm. and thinking, wow, this celebrity itself could be of use to me. How did you navigate that?
1: Yeah. So um, for me, I I don't love celebrity endorsements. I feel like they're so, they're so trans. they're so transparent like people yeah. people just see through it yeah. and um, it, it's not organic yeah. so for me it was it was a great um, great moment to get celebrity investment but I never want to, to tell them how to talk about Daily Harvest mm-hmm. um, you know they they kind of put their money where their mouth is like that to me is the ultimate endorsement right. and um, you know then it's up to them to, to share it how to share their story and you know their interactions with the brand as they please and have they yeah
0: okay so that's that's awesome if they just are willing to do you a favor basically yeah, yeah i mean yeah. it's
1: not it's not a favorite because they it's, love it
0: yeah and it's also not favor because they're investors right yeah <laughs> totally.
1: totally. yeah
0: um all right so one of the things that you've been credited with doing very well is social media mm-hmm. and so i wonder if you could just talk a little bit about when, when were you doing it you weren't you clearly weren't doing it Right from the beginning, because no, you described word of mouth. So, how did your social media strategy evolve and how would you describe it?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that I often, often say to people is that um, it all comes back to brand, mm-hmm. right? So, when you're building a brand, um, you have to figure out what the emotional attachment is to what you're trying to achieve. So there's, you know, there are the benefits of the product. There are um, you know, the story that you're trying to tell. There's all of these different things that go into building a brand, but you have to focus on that emotional attachment. And that's how we look at social media. And we say, you know, each social channel has a different way of making an emotional connection. Like Instagram, for example, is about inspiration. People mm-hmm. don't go to Instagram to find out like, you know, who where to find their their most their closest lobbyist, you know, right. it's just, it's like not <laughs> what the channel's for. Right. Um, so if you're really mindful about what each channel is for and what the emotional connection is and how you kind of connect the dots, um, then social media is really not a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I would also say that, uh, you know, depending on what it is, what the product is, um, you know, you really have to un- have to have like a very strong visual identity. And it has to live and breathe through every touchpoint, mm-hmm. and you know social is no different.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 so, how big a role does social play in your acquisition strategy now? I, I imagine you're acquiring in a lot of different ways, Mm -hmm. but maybe talk a little bit about the landscape of what levers you have to acquire customers and what's working and and how you think about it.
1: Yeah, Yeah, so we still have a lot of organic growth, um, which is Which is largely
0: word of mouth. Word of mouth,
1: yeah. Yeah, but we've got paid social, Mm -hmm. which, you know, everybody uses Facebook Instagram and and that's kind of you know when you're launching something new or when you're trying to, to reach a new audience that's the best way to do it mm-hmm. so um, paid
0: social is is Facebook mm-hmm. uh, Instagram. Instagram yeah and you have a paid ad in that's that's targeted at some demographic yep. people all know way too much about that these days I yeah think. exactly
1: exactly <laughs> yeah. Um, you know and then you've got um, you know, influencer marketing, mm-hmm. which is is hugely successful. Like you send your product to people, and yeah. if they like it, yeah, they post about it. Yeah, um, you know, and and that's always been, um, you know, it's an ever evolving. And I guess it's an industry, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it's one that that works if you mm-hmm. and again, if you understand your brand and you understand yep. the emotional connection, you find the right people. Mm-hmm. It's something that can really work. Um, you know, there's referral. There is, um, you know, classic SEM, SEO that, you know, are, are super important. And then there's there's podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, podcasts are, are actually uh, pretty successful. Yeah. for
0: us. Do you advertise on podcasts? We do. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's remarkable. It's yeah. real. You know, can you imagine a more targeted audience, right? Yep. Somebody listening to two hours of something—they're really obviously very interested. Exactly, yeah. and yeah.
1: it all comes back to that emotional yeah. connection. Yeah. It's like you know—is that is the the host that you're advertising with? Right. Um, are they part of that? Right.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, we just have time for one more thread here, and I, I want to just ask you about the future for mm-hmm. Daily Harvest. Uh, in on the one hand. You've crafted this, as we talked about earlier, this tightly coherent solution that's pretty specific. Mm-hmm. You know, using these cups in a box and dry ice and so forth. Right. Um, I, I'm sure it's a question your Series B investors ask, which is, okay, what can the future be? So, yeah. ten years from now, what can Daily Harvest be?
1: For right. sure. So, yeah. you know, as I said, frozen food is a fifty-two billion dollar category, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's kind of constrained by its history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you think about soup, when you think about lattes, these are not a breakfast cereal. These are mm-hmm. things that are not traditionally in the frozen category. Um, so there's a lot of innovation to yeah. be had. And you know, when you think about how you how you sidestep um, the stigma, of the freezer aisle, it's right. really direct to consumer. Yeah. We can target customers. Yeah. We can tell them the real story. We can we can kind of get their heads outside mm-hmm. of um, you know this aisle that is literally and figuratively a cold place. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've got a lot to do, and yeah. it, it really is reimagining frozen food, yeah. as broad as that sounds, um, to solve this modern eating dilemma.
0: Yeah. Well well put. Uh, Rachel, we're out of time, but thanks so much for joining
1: us. Thank you so much.
0: All right. For more information about Daily Harvest, just go to daily-harvest.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. On Sirius XM channel 111, the show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.